Hey, everybody, don't hit skip, because before we get to today's episode of the Total Soccer Show, I wanted to ask you for a favor. Uh, if you listeners could, please uh, click in the show notes for today's episode and then follow the link that's there to a very short survey. It's 11 super simple questions. will take you uh, about 60 seconds, maybe fewer, depending on how fast you are with your clicking. Um, but so head over there now. It helps us get better information about you, about how long you've listened to the show, and obviously, importantly for advertisers, gives them some information to then present to those advertisers to then keep the show going, to keep the athletic going all that great stuff going. So thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this. Now, on with the show. Welcome to a weekend review edition of the Total Soccer Show, recorded from my bedroom at home with a shared wall with our neighbors who probably just heard me scream that. On the other end of the line, hopefully slightly less loud, is Mr. Ryan Bailey. Hello, Ryan. Sorry, that made me laugh out loud that you're in your bedroom recording alone. Oh, it's so beautiful. What an image. Are you sitting on the edge of your bed right now? Oh, it's even more ridiculous because in order to like uh, dull the sound and the echo, I have sheets up. Uh, Joe Lowry, I sent him a photo of this to, like as an example of how to limit your echo when you're recording a podcast. I basically have a sheet for it. I've got tents uh, going on. That's what I've got. I've got some pillows around me. It's, it's a nice little situation I got, Ryan. Well, when I do quite, when I do voiceover, or if I have to do a podcast appearance or something like that, uh, if I'm in a hotel room or not in my home, I'll go under the duvet. I'll go under the sheets mm-hmm. in the bed. It's the best place to do it. But you get very hot after about three minutes. This is the issue. I came in here all dressed for the day, and I've already like stripped down twice. Uh, let, if I end up just <laughs> recording in my skivvies, uh, I'll try to keep that off the air. Uh, it is also, also worth noting that I believe the Total Soccer Show office is a seven-minute drive from my home, so this is just me being lazy. Uh, but uh, I was not lazy in my research, in my watching of the weekend's action. I'm sure you were not either, Ryan. We're going to be talking Classico. We're going to talk uh, Villa City in the league, Carabao Milk, uh, Coca-Cola, Capital One Cup, whatever it is now. Uh, We're going to talk VAR drama, Watford uh, defeating Liverpool, some MLS action, and some controversies in Germany. But we probably have to start with El Clasico. Real Madrid with the 2-0 win over Barcelona. I've got some thumbs. I've got some reactions to this one. I thought it was a proper Clasico in that it was not maybe the most entertaining of soccer at times, but very physical, uh, very dramatic. A lot of uh, yellow cards handed out, some some scrapping, some shoving. Ray Hudson sighing every single time there was an opportunity <laughs> that wasn't taken. I love him audibly sighing on Mike. Uh, I enjoyed this one. Ryan, were you into it or were you uh, maybe frustrated by some of the slowness of the game? A lot like our friendship, Taylor. It got better with time. There we That's go. That's what I thought about this game. It was very entertaining, as you say, all those aspects of it. It's, it's a fool's errand to try and predict a Classico. It really you know is. That the, the away team, only the hosts have only won two of the last 14, now three of the last 15 Classicos. So there's, there's no home form in this game, and it's very hard to predict, even from a, if, you, if you were inclined to uh, have a bet on this kind of game. And I thought that Real Madrid were here for the taking here. Because of the way they've gone into this game, because of their loss to Manchester City, because of not having Eden Hazard, because of they've only won one of their last five games going into this, because of their pretty poor record in this Classico in recent in recent Classicos as well. So I'm I'm kind of surprised it went this way, but uh, also 
I'm very entertained by it, yeah. and I've got I've not got a dog in this fight, and I thought it was a great game. Yeah, I, I think uh, Kike Setien came out and explained his approach after the game, although I think it was fairly apparent uh, in the game that Barcelona were sort of at uh, time of kickoff, top of the table, knew Real Madrid had to kind of take the game to them in order to mm. try to get the three points. So I think Barcelona were all about sort of slowing it down. They never really overcommitted. Both teams seemed very hesitant to get caught on the counterattack, which meant both teams were very hesitant to commit numbers forward. And so I think for Barcelona, they were able to pass and pass and pass and move the ball around, but that's sort of what we expect from them. And so in some ways, I think that almost became a problem for them because it allowed Madrid to sort of weather that storm, even though it wasn't that much of a storm, and then sort of grow with confidence and gain their way into it. And I think Barcelona maybe being so focused on possession and ball movement and ball retention might have given Madrid just a little bit of confidence, a little bit of room to play. Yeah, almost played to their strengths, didn't it, with the strength of this Real Madrid side being able to get the ball out of tight spaces. And... um, you know, Setien did go into this game saying he wanted possession, but this was kind of the aimless sideways not going anywhere possession, wasn't it? It was quite sloppy at times. It was definitely slow. And Leo Messi definitely took the slow message to heart in yeah. this game as well, didn't he? And it just seemed like Real Madrid just kept winning the ball back. Uh, Barcelona couldn't hold on to it as much as they tried. They couldn't quite handle the Real Madrid press. And we've got to give, we've got to give a thumbs up. We've got to give credit to the way that Zidane's gone about this game mm-hmm. because I think he definitely played to Barcelona's weaknesses, if that makes sense. It does. It does. Uh, but w- which, which ones in particular do you mean? The, the weaknesses? Mm-hmm. Just in, just in terms of the, the fact that they weren't as penetrating as they could be, I yeah. suppose. I think uh, the, the, the passes weren't as, uh, uh, you know, they didn't go in the right kind of directions. I don't, you know... I'm, I'm not sure about the, the lineup, you know, that Albert left back and, you know, my, my favorite player in the world, Junior Firpo, not getting that position, which I know <laughs> is a bit hypocritical of me to say so. But there was just, just lots of inconse- in, mm-hmm. incoherence. Incoherence is the word I'd use with Barcelona. Let's yeah. look at, say, the relationship of Griezmann and Messi. Uh, there's not one, is there? Yeah, I was going to say, is there one? They're, <laughs> they're not on the same wavelength at all. And there's a question for you on this, Taylor, with Griezmann. Is it that he's just not performing up to his own standard or is it he's just being poorly used? Because I can't tell at the moment because obviously if he, I, I feel like if he was an Atletico Madrid side right now, he'd be performing at a much higher standard. Is it just that he's not getting the service and he's not got the relationships with the other players in that forward line that he requires or is this something personally down to Griezmann? I just don't know. We know in this game he had a couple of uh, shots that went a bit wayward, but otherwise, mm-hmm. meh. Yeah, I mean, I think it can be some combination of the two or one leading to another, that if he is sort of being used, because we've talked about this before, but this team, again, seems very much set up to create space and create opportunities for Lionel Messi, and I think a lot of the players on the team are more than happy to do that because it's Lionel Messi, Mm. but for a player like Antoine Griezmann, who I think thrives on confidence and momentum and sort of being in the right rhythms to make the right runs, to be in the right position to score the right goals, if some of that gets knocked off, if some of it isn't about you, if you're not so front and center, I think then you're not going to be as fluid, you're not going to be as confident when those chances come, so then you're not going to take them as cleanly, and that does maybe explain in my mind some of the missed uh, chances he has in this game. I mm-hmm. think you could see the moments of what Barcelona were trying to do. There's um, there's the one near the end of the first half, I think it's the 38th minute when Messi uh, runs in behind, he gets kind of like the lofted in ball from, I believe, uh, Busquets. He's on the end of it, but it's a great save from Thibaut Courtois. But right there, Frankie de Jong had moved to be sort of the number nine, and you can see about... 
three seconds before Busquets plays that ball, Messi clearly has a word because De Jong is looking at Busquets, then suddenly looks at Messi and then sort of looks back. And it's almost like a bad poker bluff. He then Mm. is like, I will run this direction now and makes a 10-yard sprint away, takes a defender with him, and that's the space that Messi runs into. (laughs) So even there, it's sort of like other players moving, maybe being asked to move, but moving in order to create opportunities for Messi. There it worked. Barcelona weren't able to take advantage of it. But I do think that's probably not necessarily what Antoine Griezmann signed up for when he first moved to Barcelona. Certainly not. Now, let's talk about the big narrative here, yeah. Taylor. Mm-hmm. Messi on the decline. Are you buying that one? Because um, in this, this game very much was a part of that narrative, I thought. I mean, mm-hmm. aside from the four goals he scored against Ibar, uh, he hasn't scored goals. Uh, I think that was his only goals in his last seven games. He hasn't scored goals when he comes up against better opposition, I think you could say. Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest tell in this game, Taylor, was his body language. Head was down a lot. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he does tend to walk around the field when he could be jogging quite a lot in general, but I think I saw more of that here. It just seems his body language was especially negative in this one. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 two things for me, and I, we'll talk about this when we talk about Liverpool's loss to Watford, but I do think you could see in moments, and Sid Lowe wrote about this in The Guardian, that even when it was still 1-0, there were just signs from Barcelona that, like, we know we've lost this game. We know we're not going to win. And I think you could see some of that in the way Messi goes about it. I think that the game ends with him having to foul Casemiro, or like just before the goal, he's fouling Casemiro, is a strange juxtaposition of roles. Um, but I do also think that with the role he's being asked to do, that when Barcelona defend, for example, they drop into more of a 4-4-2. Vidal was nominally a right winger in this game, but would kind of move inside, be a right midfielder slash a right center midfielder. And I think then that if you're not asking Lionel Messi to do any defensive work, he's not going to do any defensive work, but that means he's walking around a lot, and he's taking his time getting back, and he's not going to be as involved in the defense. And not necessarily saying that that's like a problem for him, because I'm assuming he's doing what his coach asks, but the optics are just really bad. It's the same as Zlatan with L.A. He's clearly not being told, drop in, do any defensive work. He's being he's doing basically what he wants to do. Maybe a little bit different there, because it's Zlatan doing what he wants to do versus Messi doing what maybe he's been asked to do. But still, it just looks like, oh, he's disinterested, he's walking around, he's not trying that hard. Whereas I think when Messi gets on that ball, when the opportunities are there, when he kind of feels that combination, when he feels like he's got the players around him who are performing to that level, I think he is uh, more than capable of still elevating a Classico. Just maybe not well, this weekend. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe not this weekend. I think the big tell, or the big indicator of that being a fact was, I think, around the 75th minute when he was sort of almost in a one-on-one chase with Marcelo. No, sorry, Marcelo was behind him. Yep. Uh, and he's going uh, going towards goal, and Marcelo mm-hmm. caught up with him. The, the apparently declining Marcelo, we should say. Interesting. Uh, and puts in a perfectly weighted tackle. Uh, and gets the ball away from Messi's feet, which also, um, which kind of goes to a back pass to the keeper. But uh, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll, uh, we'll go past that point. But the point was, I think, you know, Messi of even two years ago would have put that away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I, I think, uh, Messi maybe not having his best game certainly didn't help, but I do also think, uh, I, if I were giving thumbs up to this one for one manager or the other, I'd say thumbs up to Zidane for his approach mm-hmm. to this one, getting his subs right. Mario, Mariano Diaz, I believe, plays his first league game of the season, scores a goal within 30 seconds. That's not bad, but you contrast that with, uh, Kike Setien. I think he get his, gets his substitutions wrong, and I think that's a huge part of what happens in this game. Uh, because as I said, Vidal on the right wing, dropping into being a right midfielder defensively in that sort of four four two shape. I think he did a really good job of containing anything uh, that was coming down the left-hand side, specifically Vinicius, uh, or did as good of a job as you could to help kind of limit the attacks and the uh, the potency of those attacks, I should say. 
Yeah. When Braithwaite comes in, uh, in this goal, and it, I think it's really, really important, is he is basically spread very wide. Uh, Semedo has kind of gone a bit more central. And I think Braithwaite, maybe because he's new to Barcelona, maybe because he's playing a little bit out of position in that he's now kind of coming in and being a right wing, right midfielder, he goes almost too wide to the side. And that opens up that space for the run from Vinicius. So I think... It's good awareness from Tony Cruz, but it's a player coming in, not being quite familiar with the defensive scheme, and thus being maybe a yard or two out of position. But that's all it really takes at this level in this type of game for Vinicius to get him behind. Then he gets the fortunate deflection from Jard Piquet. But I think that that substitution probably plays more of a role than I expected it would. Yeah, I think you're quite right. And Braithwaite, for, for, for what it's worth, I thought wasn't bad. I think no. he almost scored immediately after coming on. But you're right in, in that moment where it, I think you talked about a, 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 an intention being telegraphed a few minutes ago. Yeah. Tony Kroos, by the way, actually oh pointing, goodness. saying, yeah. I'm going to hold the <laughs> ball for five run. minutes. I'm going to write out a note in, in, in parchment and I'm going to p- mail it over to you because I've got the ball for so long because Artur is going to give me all the time in the world on the ball to do this. I'm going to point with a big neon sign, go through there. I'm going to pass it between these two blaugrana shirts and that's exactly what he did and that was very good from Kroos but also like come on Barcelona a bit more pressure would have been more appropriate in that moment wouldn't it that would that would have been okay that would have been just (laughs) fine I think and I do think with the way we've talked about Barcelona uh with Real Madrid versus Barcelona that we had uh Sam Tai on a a few weeks ago and he was kind of talking about how maybe the roles have flipped a little bit that suddenly Real Madrid are making smart signings they're bringing through academy products Barcelona seem a little bit lost there's a lot of front office drama this you're absolutely right that it felt like maybe Madrid were there for the taking and that Barcelona would kind of continue to cement their spot on top instead maybe this is a bit hot take but this is one I'm comfortable with. This feels like maybe this is sort of the changing of the guard. Of We see Madrid in the relative stability of Real Madrid with Zidane making smart choices, bringing in the players that I think he wants to do that fit his system, but with a lot of young players coming through, very exciting young players, very talented young players, that they get this result while missing some of their at least most well-remunerated players, I think is a sign of the strength of uh, Real Madrid and maybe the vulnerability of Barcelona. I think the problem with hot takes in terms of Real Madrid and Barcelona, Taylor, is that they only last about five minutes. Well, there's that. My, the opening line of my Classico preview I wrote for Yahoo Sports was something like, uh, there's only three certainties in life, death taxes, and one of the two clubs will be in crisis, in, uh, in quotation marks at some <laughs> point, because cri- they seem to undulate in and out of crisis, basically on a weekly basis. And I sort of mm-hmm. tried to gauge a crisisometer of these two teams beforehand, oh with Real Madrid just about getting the edge on the crisis, which also, of course, has to be put in context, because neither of them's really in crisis. They're both doing quite well in the whole yeah. grand scheme of things. But um, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if next week we're having a different conversation about how Barcelona are supreme again and that passing that we criticise for being unpenetrating and sideways is suddenly Cruyffian and amazing again. And then yeah, Madrid, sort of, you know, they don't happen to get a substitute who comes on and has four touches and scores a goal. You know, maybe maybe the coin flips the other direction next week. So I think that's an issue with, uh, with the hot take. But uh, as far as what you just said there, I'm on board with it. All right. Well, uh, if that does happen, then we'll just come back and delete this entire section of the audio. But right now, uh, in La Liga, it is Real Madrid on top with 56 points, Barcelona behind with 55. Then there's a big gap, and then you've got Sevilla on 46, Atafe on 45. So, uh, yeah, as expected, Real Madrid, Barcelona, uh, probably in that order, will be duking it out for the rest of the season. Uh, let's move to England. We usually start with England, but we're going to go there now to talk the League Cup final, uh, Aston Villa 1, Manchester City 2. Uh, I'm going to say this is the most impressive trophy that Pep Guardiola has won in his, uh, in his many years. 
Taylor, they did it. They finally did it. The three-peat, baby. The three-peat. No one's ever won the League Cup. Maybe they've not won the League Cup three times in a row. And this is, a, this is just such a glorious moment because the team that's just been caught cheating and bad from Europe won a trophy by a goal that shouldn't have counted. And Let's guarantees them a spot in Europe, I believe. Uh, if they hadn't been banned, I believe winning the League Cup gets you into the UEFA uh, League uh, or the Europa League if that were, uh, you know... Uh, a possibility for them, and given that they're going to qualify for the Champions League anyway, maybe less important overall. Thumbs up for the modern game, Tay <laughs> Love it. Love it. Uh, uh, we should note, uh, yeah, it is uh, Pep Guardiola's, I saw this statistic, his 29th trophy in 11 seasons as a manager. A decent rate of return uh, for Mr. Guardiola. And I think there were moments in this game that reminded me, like, oh, right, he is really, really good even if he is a bit of a micromanager, because we're going to get to that winning goal, the second goal for um, Man City, which maybe there's some debate about, but I want to talk about the first goal for maybe. a moment. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. Um, but I want to talk about the first the first goal because I thought this was really, really interesting in that it showcased why Man City are so dangerous. They're clearly trying to play it down the left-hand channel. Uh, I think it's, they're trying to get to like Zinchenko. They're keeping Sterling wide, and then uh, basically Zinchenko can play in Sterling, and now there's an opportunity. Watford sitting in very defensively in a 4-5-1 spread wide so they take that option away basically Zinchenko can't play uh, into Sterling because there tend to be people in the way so then Zinchenko basically sprints central becomes another central central midfielder takes a defender with him gets the ball lays it off to Stones who plays it to Fernandinho who now plays it wide to Raheem Sterling and now Sterling is in 30 yards of space he goes at the defense and I think Watford all collapse entirely they drop too deep and that's why there is space at the top of the box for Rodri Uh, and then he plays that ball in we end in the goal, but I just felt like that was City sort of seeing a, a compact defense that didn't want to let them play through and adjusting their pieces to then find the space to then be able to play through. I thought that was some excellent in-game management from uh, both Pep Guardiola and the Man City players uh, as a unit. Yeah, definitely. It's where, where, you know, the typical City goal is driving to the byline and cutting the ball back and then someone tapping it in. This was kind of like they took a different route through the jigsaw, wasn't it? They got to the yeah. edge of the box and then chipped to the byline for Foden to put it back in Aguero's mm-hmm. path. Uh, I, I thought, um, you know, unlucky Tyron Mings um, deflection there because I thought Mings was actually really good in mm-hmm. this game in general. But, you know, there was some... Uh, I don't think Foden was picked up at all during that whole little uh, not so much. part of play. It's not, not so much indeed, but Rog, a great ball from Rodri, a very well-worked goal for Manchester City this one. And, and as you say, very very good uh, from Zinchenko movement there. And Rodri also, I, I think I need to give him a thumbs up here because mm-hmm. was this the most Fernandinho-esque we've yes. seen him be? Because I know that he's not quite got the range of movement, he's, uh, range of passing, sorry, he's not quite got the vision of Fernandinho, but he was definitely holding up play, doing the Guardiola-style just about not getting yellow cards, even though he did get one. Um, I mean, that, that's what makes him up. the most Fernandinho right there for me, is that he kept <laughs> not getting one, and then eventually yeah. finally did get one. It just wasn't in, like, the eighth minute of the game, which is a thing that he maybe sometimes does. Instead, I forget when it, when it actually ends up happening. I think it's, it's like, 60th or, like, later in, later in the half for sure. Right, exactly. But I, I thought usually Fernandinho is a better player than Rodri, but it was the way, other way around in this game because Rodri really settled into that Fernandinho role, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, that sentence I've just said at all. I, like uh, it. I, I, was, I was very impressed with him. It, one of several impressive performances in here in this game for City. Foden obviously being another big one as well. Yeah, I mean, and Rodri, uh, to your point, obviously does the defensive job, uh, does the good job of kind of policing the midfield, plays the lovely ball in for the assist to the assist, the MLS assist, if you will, for the first goal, and then <laughs> scores the second goal. Um, 
I would note that maybe this was poor planning by Aston Villa. Is Gilbert is marking Rodri. Uh, we should note Rodri 6'3", Gilbert uh, 5'10". I believe that's a five-inch difference, and you can sort of see that there. Plus Gilbert a little has bit of mass. hands on him the whole time. The he never lets time. go. But yeah, he still I, loses it. And I love that the commentators sort of, they kept trying, like, in, like, little half-bursts of, like, oh, he, he's uh, he's on him, but he gets distracted. No, he's with No, like, he loses him in the scrum. No, he doesn't really lose him in the scrum. Like, they kept <laughs> trying to find explanations, and really the answer is he's with him. He's hanging on the jersey. He just never has position, never really causes Rodri any problems, and Rodri has a... I'm going to say uncontested header, despite having a person literally holding his jersey. <laughs> Somehow those two things exist simultaneously. But I think the point you made earlier is that this goal does come about through a corner that should probably not have been given slash should definitely not have been given. It's not. It's, it's the latter of those uh, yes. options there. It definitely shouldn't <laughs> yeah. have been given. There was a big deflection, a rebound off of Gundogan. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it should not have been a corner there. And the beef I have with this is around VAR. Why... It, we have VAR and it's slowing down the game. It's part of our game now. It's part of the fabric of the discussion. And its intention is to ro- right the wrongs, you know, pick out the big mm-hmm. major problems. And this was a major problem. This was a major error. Why are we not using VAR for this? And I know some people will say, well, you know, it would slow- the game would take three hours if we had to check every corner and every throw on. Why not just check the corners that lead to goals? Mm-hmm. When, you, when you're checking through the goal, when the ball's in the back of the net, have a little look back at that corner because when we were watching it on TV, within three seconds, we could see that shouldn't have been a corner. Why can't they have made that three-second process happen at Stockley Park with, with the VAR system? And, you know, had, had this been more of a just situation because this would have been a very different game going forward had that goal not gone in. So we're going to talk uh, VAR uh, after we finish up this conversation, uh, and we'll talk about Everton, Man United, we'll talk about uh, Nashville, uh, Atlanta, and what happened there. And strangely, despite all of the controversy with those two games I just mentioned, this is the one that I find sort of the most confusing and a little bit the most difficult, because if you listen to the commentators, the way they explain it is like, well... It should have been, but uh, you don't VAR corners. And then it was, well, like, you know, if if they had scored a goal off of it, then it would have been VAR'd. But they didn't, except they did, but they scored off the corner, not the play that led to the corner. So I, I think, strangely, a small part of this is that we don't have these sort of, like easy shorthand terms, the way we can just say like, oh, it's a dog, so it's a red card. Like you you kind of, everybody gets on board, everybody kind of knows what that means, whereas I feel like sometimes what we end up getting is the uh, well, the corners don't get VAR'd uh, because that's just kind of the way it is, but it would have been, but it wasn't, so and like that's where I think some of the consternation comes about, because if we don't have clear concise explanations, then I think things get even hazier and even more confusing. I just think it's a cop-out not to do the corners there, isn't it? I mean, I I don't know, because I guess, like, for me personally, I do think it would be sort of strange if they're reviewing, because that would require them to review every single corner, right? Which, it wouldn't, no. It wouldn't. Just when, if that goal goes in the back of the net, mm-hmm. then review it. But then, how, I, then the question is, how far back do you go? I've had this question as well, because... Well, the, the, the answer one, is you go back to the corner that calls the goal. Yeah, because, because we have this... I think this happened in Major League Soccer this weekend. I forget where it was, that you have a player, maybe it was LAFC, who's clearly offside in the lead-up to a play... But because of the way the rule goes, sometimes that flag doesn't go up right away because the idea is VAR will catch it after the fact. But then if it goes out for a throw-in or a corner and you score from one of those, it won't be VAR'd. And that is where I, I see your point, that it does make sense to maybe look at the lead-up to the play. And maybe that's something that Ryan and I can introduce uh, when we go to IFAB. We can argue on its behalf. Did you know that that's happening, Ryan? We're going tomorrow? 
finally they're going to let us rule this game. Is that right? <laughs> uh, yes, that, that's the plan. Until they do that, <laughs> we are going to talk VAR, but my final thing I wanted to say from this game, I gave thumbs up to Zinchenko. I would say uh, thumbs mostly up to Aston Villa for a bit of a fight back. They get the goal, but they get the goal because thumbs down to John Stones for really not helping Woo! his own cause. Um, he has a couple bad passes, one of which he overhits to Raheem Sterling by about 30 yards. It goes out of bounds, and it's just like Sterling sort of watches it soar over his head and very confusedly sort of looks at John Stones and then gives like a very slow thumbs up that I think was, I can't tell if that was sarcasm or just like, I'm trying to be positive because I know you're having a rough go. But then the fact that he, he slips, he falls. I don't think it was the ESPN crew were talking about how it's a lack of game time and a lack of sharpness and he, he's not good enough in training. So he's not good enough here. I think it's just an unfortunate moment that maybe the panic, maybe it's a little bit of uh, like out of sortsness, but either way, it's just not a very good look. And I feel for John Stones because uh, though Man City win and lift the trophy, he doesn't necessarily cover himself in glory too much. He does not. Now, Mm-mm. my daughter, my seven-year-old daughter, is getting into uh, telling jokes at the moment. So oh, I was boy. watching this game yesterday with her, and she's like, Daddy, why did the chicken cross the road? Why? Because um, it wanted to find the exit. And I was like, oh, that's, that's hilarious. You've taken a new twist on that joke. Let me try a joke for you. Did you hear about the uh, soccer club who paid £50 million for a defender who keeps falling over like Bambi <laughs> on ice? Now, she didn't find that one no? as funny as I did, but I, I still appreciated it myself. Now, it... The, the the thing with Stones is I can't tell if it's just was a lack the punchline of... to that joke by the way uh, because FIFA financial play, fair play rules require you to have uh, a certain number of domestic players is that how it is <laughs> I'm not even sure that's true but I do sometimes wonder if that's why maybe John Stones is in there still I mean that's an expensive solution to that problem <laughs> but sure uh, I, I think yeah the, he is accused maybe of, of having a lack of confidence I think that might be it and lack of game time might be it also but I've heard some other people saying that maybe it's because he works best when he's got Laporte holding his hand, when he's got a more senior centre-back holding his mm-hmm. hand. And with Fernandinho, who is obviously senior, but he's not a senior centre-back necessarily, didn't quite have the support system that he needs. Now, if my £50 million defender needs a support system like that, I've got questions. <laughs> what, what are your questions? Why? <laughs> That's I mean, the main I, one. <laughs> I would also add, I believe John Stones and Imerick Laporte are roughly the same age. At least they're both 25. So, yeah, I, I, I take your point, And yet it's still funny to hear like a much more senior defender who's newer to the league and is the same age. Yeah, exactly. It should, it should, there should not be that uh, discrepancy in status between the two, definitely. But one more thing I wanted to comment on this game. Please. When Kevin De Bruyne came on, uh, I, I believe it was his first touch where he completely fell over the ball. That was Attaboy. the moment of the game for me. Attaboy. I loved it. It I just takes like some time. That. He just didn't want John Stones to feel isolated. Uh, that's <laughs> exactly. all. So we had a VAR, uh, a little VAR controversy in this one, much more so in uh, Everton 1, Man United 1. Uh, we have the, the late goal. Seems like Everton get the winner. Uh, it's, what, 93rd, 94th minute, I believe. Uh, mm-hmm. But it is ruled out because Gilfie Sigurdsson uh, judged to have been actively interfering in play and thus uh, was offside. I have, I think I have an explanation, uh, for what happened here. Um, but Ryan, I know you have some feelings about this one, so I wanted to hear your thoughts first. I have feelings, and I know there's a long-running narrative on this podcast of Ryan not understanding the rules of soccer, so maybe this plays into that a little bit, but... Was Sigurdsson actually interfering with play? And this is the point they kind of got into on the NBCSN coverage because De Gea, when he sees the shot coming in, he makes his move. He dives, or he tr- attempts to dive to his right and the ball is deflected off Maguire and goes to his left. So arguably Sigurdsson being there, it's not blocking his view and it's not making him make a different decision to the one he was making. So arguably he's not interfering with play there. And then there's the argument about the ball actually being scored as an own goal by Maguire, which I believe it would have been. I don't think it was going on target. 
how can he be offside if that's the case anyway? So there's a couple of things going on here which yeah. I didn't quite understand. So I think I think I have an explanation. Uh, I'm not You're saying right. necessarily that I, I agree with it entirely, but this is what I understand. I think you have to break this sequence into two distinct parts. Uh, and I think that's what I listened to former referee Chris Foy. He said, uh, not a difficult decision. I think it becomes emotional because of the time in the game and because of the fact that it would have been a winner for Everton. I think that's true. Uh, but I also think he had a distinction that he made that I think factors in. He was saying that it's not about line of sight. It's about line of vision. And uh, And what I mean there, see, this is all where VAR gets slightly complicated. Um, is that when that shot is taken, the initial shot is taken, I think his argument is Gilfie Sigerson is standing in a position that doesn't necessarily block David Hayes' view, but it blocks his overall field of vision. So even though he jumps to it, you can make an argument that he can't move closer because so Sigurdsson could be in the way. He can't necessarily completely judge what's happening with the ball. And so that's where the offside call is given. The very confusing thing to me is that because that's like part one that is completely separate from part two, which is that if it comes off Maguire, which it does, and Sigurdsson, where he was, had just gotten a foot to it and swept it into the goal, then that goal counts because it comes off Maguire, Maguire being actively involved, then mm. basically makes Sigurdsson's involvement uh, like positive again or legal again. So it, that's the thing that I think is so confusing because coming off of Maguire makes it seem like, well, either way, he should be onside. But because I think the infraction is is judged to have occurred as the shot is taken before it goes off Maguire, that's where the flag goes up. That's where VAR has a look at it. It's just really confusing because in a half second, you're probably not able to make that judgment. Whereas watching a replay a bunch of different times is where maybe that nuance gets clarified, at least to the officials. I wonder if Harry Maguire's brother was texting me about scoring before that game because he, he very nearly made it. Didn't oh, you he? mean man of the match, Harry Maguire? That was interesting. That was interesting to me. Huh. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. But uh, uh, this uh, this incident, as much as it was controversial, Taylor, it did give us the greatest incident oh, of my the goodness. weekend that came after that, which was Carlo Ancelotti's red card. Uh, yeah, and not just for the the actual red card process. So Ancelotti's going goes up to the referee. He treats him like a school child. Off you go, off you go, off you go. He says to him three times. And Ancelotti sort of walks away after being given the red card for protesting about this incident. But full credit to the camera operator mm-hmm. and, for the, and for the production here, because as he walks away, it's like he's in a Scorsese movie, like mm-hmm. a gangster walking away oh, yeah. from a burning building. It looks amazing. And Ancelotti looks amazing anyway, but to have him get a red card, walk away, uh, if he'd have lit a cigarette at that point, it would have been perfect. It, it really great. is. Don't it really has the Goodfellas tracking vibe, uh, uh, tracking shot vibe to it. You're absolutely right, because the camera sticks with him. My favorite little part is after he gets the red card, you can see him being Cavalanchalati. He looks very just calm, like even though he's very clearly very frustrated, and he has a very quick like like animalistic Hannibal Lecter turned like very angrily because he sees someone in his periphery and it's just a steward. There's just a steward there. But you can tell in that moment that he was like someone else to yell at. I'll yell at you too. I am not afraid. Oh, it's just, a, okay, fine. Then I'll just keep walking. But he has like yeah. that half second flare up that I was like, Ooh, that anger is there. He just is very able to, uh, to mask it with his calm and suave demeanor. If, if we just put, I need to edit it to put some Rolling Stones over the top of it. Yep. And that literally could be the next Scorsese flick. Amazing. Oh, man. Yeah, that's He's so uh, cool, isn't he? Isn't he cool? I love having him in the Premier League. I think, great. I, I think I would watch a video of Carlo Ancelotti doing things set to the Rolling Stones. I think that's a good call. Early Stones, at least. Early Stones. Uh, the other VAR incident <laughs> that I was really, really confused by, somewhat baffled by, in fact, was uh, in Nashville's uh, 2-1 loss to Atlanta United. Um, mm-hmm. It's late in the game, again, in the 94th minute, I believe. Um, 
Nashville are forward. There's a ball cleared. Uh, basically, it's a foot race uh, between Joe Willis, the goalkeeper for Nashville, and Ezekiel Barco right around midfield. Willis gets to it first, but doesn't get it cleanly. The ball then eventually spills to Barco. Willis retreats a little bit. Then, as Barco shoots, I think is maybe thinking the goal is unprotected, and thus jumps, blocks it with his hand. Hides it pretty well. Replays show he clearly did use his hand, and yet a yellow card is given. There's some controversy here, although I think this one is even more easily explained. Yes, it is. And by the way, I don't think he hit it that well. He he handled it with both hands yeah. near the halfway line. And whatever the controversy was here, just he gets the Manuel Neuer award for venturing out of goal because that was brilliant sweeper keepering up until the point where he blatantly handled it with both hands. And I was fairly confused by this one and only getting yellow card because surely he's denied a, mm-hmm. a goal scoring opportunity because when the ball is kicked and it before it hits his hands, that thing is headed towards the goal. But you, Tete, spotted yeah. a little detail. Yeah. So it, it took me a while because I kept counting the numbers of Nashville players and being confused because I was like, I know there was somebody else there previously. Where did he go? And it's really easy to get distracted. I kept getting distracted by the Willis-Barco kind of fracas at midfield, but I think it's uh, Hani Mukhtar, who's, I think, tasked with sitting about 30 yards uh, from the opposition goal on corner kicks to sort of pick up a loose ball and then maybe also defend a counter. He sprints back and gets into a decent position when Willis comes off his line and then I think really quickly realizes to his credit Willis is not going to win this cleanly the ball is going to go back to Barco and Mukhtar again if it's Mukhtar is on his horse and is fully sprinting and is very quickly out of frame so that it looks like there's only maybe one maybe two defenders behind Willis but no one in a position where they could actively defend the goal so at that point it looks like oh there's two defenders there but they're not going to be able to get anywhere near the goal Willis handballs it because he doesn't want it to go in that's definitely a red card that's definitely dog so but I think because Mukhtar is so quickly out of frame it's easy to not notice that he has made that run back and is at the very least inside the 18 when that shot is taken so I think the argument then is well he could have been in a position to defend it he could have even been in a position to dive handle it himself and get a red card but that alone would kind of justify Willis getting a yellow, and then if that incident occurred, Mukhtar or whomever it were getting the red. So I think that's why it's only a yellow because it's not entirely a dog so moment. Oh, just any opportunity to use the acronym dog so works for me. Got I love you. it. I Got love you. it. So and, uh, I, I, this is this kind of incident you don't see every day as well. It's it's quite exciting. And these two teams, by the way, I'm Charlotte MLS till I die, as you, as you know by my tattoo across my forehead. When of course, you saw me last week, Taylor. I, I was surprised um, you had that done. Brand yeah, loyalty, no, my friend. I'm I'm all I'm all in. I'm all in. So I'm supposed to hate both of these two teams. So. Um, a draw would have been better? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I think if you do hate Atlanta United, you are maybe somewhat uh, pleased by the news that Joseph Martinez will be out for the season. I am not. I tweeted this earlier. No. For not having any loyalty to Atlanta United, I find myself like genuinely saddened by a season without Joseph Martinez because he's so much fun to watch. He scores such big goals. Just watching him again, going back and watching this game after knowing that he now is going to be out for at the very least, very much of the season, probably the entire season. Um, It's just watching his runs, watch how energetically he celebrates goals, watching how into it he is. It's just going to be a slightly less fun season with no Jose Martinez. Uh, So I did want to note commiserations to Atlanta, commiserations to Jose Martinez. And I guess on a less serious note, commiserations to Liverpool fans and the Liverpool team. A 3-0 loss to Watford this weekend. Thumbs up to Watford. Let's start with them. Uh, Incredibly well-organized, and I think uh, well-organized and then routinely well-organized and almost clinical in kind of targeting vulnerabilities from Liverpool that they were able to exploit to get that 3-0 win. Yeah, definitely. Very, very impressive display from Watford, by the way, who lost uh, basically their only shot of getting a goal with Adela Feu, who came off injured, who we now know, much like uh, Joseph Martinez, has got an ACL injury for the rest of the season. That's very 
unfortunate. But it, it just seemed like Watford could have scored even more goals in this game, yep. didn't it? They, they were so well organised. They were so good going forward. Nigel Pearson, do not mess with that man. Do not, especially when he's scruffy. If he hasn't shaved in a couple of days, you know he's even more intense and ruthless. <laughs> and I think here, Watford were a little bit ruthless in that they looked at the two center backs, or at least Trodini looked at the two center backs, saw Virgil mm. van Dijk and thought, nah, and thought, and saw Dejan Lovren and thought, yeah, that's the one. And really posted up on him, caused lots of problems for Lovren, I think just because he could not handle Trodini without fouling. And I think you saw his frustration a little bit as the game went on, that Lovren starts to make those just a few afters, I believe is how the, the Brits refer to it, when it's like, ball's gone, and and then Lovren clatter somebody. Ball's about to be gone, and then Lovren clatter somebody. I thought his sort of getting frustrated by the amount of times he was targeted uh, showed how good Watford were at sort of bringing out that level of frustration from him. Yeah, definitely. I thought they were targeting him, definitely. And I thought they were targeting Trent Alexander-Arnold as well, sort of these mm-hmm. chipped aerial balls towards him, which he didn't handle very well. And he had a pretty poor game, not just because of that awful back pass for the third goal. Mm-hmm. But I'm just picturing Jurgen Klopp after this game, sitting there thinking, if I've got the choice between Lovren and Matip, I think I might go Matip next time. Yeah, I, I, I think I might as well, because, I mean, <laughs> lo- you look at... I'm actually really happy that Troy Dini scores. Uh, he scores the third goal. Thumbs mm. up to Dini, thumbs up to Ismail Asar, who got the other two. Yeah. But I, I think I was going to be really sad if Troy Dini didn't score, because for the first goal, at least, he's not, like involved in terms of being on the score sheet. But it's worth noting, it's from a throw-in. Watford throw the ball in, it's into the box, it bounces in the box, but Troy Deeney is so physically adept at holding off players, again, in this case, Lovren, Lovren is so focused on trying to beat Troy to kind of knock him off to be able to win that header that he's not really paying attention to the ball, which is why it pops over his head. And then uh, there's basically a scramble from there. I believe it's Decore who's able to play it in. Yeah. Sar finishes. But that level of like fight and physicality from Troy Deeney there, you see it again uh, in the the ball that he keeps alive. Again, I believe it's from a Watford throw that uh, is back heel to Deeney. Deeney sweeps it down the line. Trent, uh, I, I froze it. Uh, it is both Virgil van Dijk and uh, Dejan Lovren are standing flat-footed, and Virgil yeah. van Dijk is like hands up calling for it to be given as a throw-in, clearly not out of bounds, but both of them caught flat-footed. Again, I think you see the sort of vulnerability of Liverpool, I think not being used to being 1-0 down, made them definitely not used to being 2-0 down, because it's a great ball from Troy Deeney, it's a great goal from Ismail Assar, but the, the hard work from both of those players was uh, obviously incredibly important in this result. I think um, this this was indicative of that that the Liverpool defence gets a thumbs down for this game, which uh, I think yeah. we can establish. Mm-hmm. But um, maybe you're giving too much credit for Troy Deeney when he's when he's up against Lovren there. Deeney's just standing there. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's his mere presence that spooks Lovren out, it seems. And it's not just Lovren at fault for basically letting the ball bounce over his head from from the throw in there. Uh, I think it's Virgil Van Dijk who doesn't make any attempt to challenge yeah. Decore. Uh, he doesn't. You know, he basically does nothing in that whole movement, as you say, flat-footed there. Uh, I think Fabinho lets a man go as well. There's a lot of defensive nonsense going on there, stuff you wouldn't expect. And particularly, I was particularly disappointed in Virgil van Dijk, not just in this movement, but several others. Yep. It seemed he was taking a, a page from the Leo Messi walk-around a bit. Book yeah, yeah. I mean, one. especially that second goal where he is just caught completely flat-footed. That. Mm. That seems like the antithesis of what Jurgen Klopp wants his Liverpool players to be is standing flat-footed and complaining as opposed to being actively engaged and applying pressure. And I think you can see the juxtaposition there. I think that's the second time I've used that word uh, in this episode. You can see Andy Robertson sprinting to try to close that gap because Troy Deeney, I think in his angle, is definitely going to keep this ball in bounds. So Andy Robertson goes to press immediately, whereas the other two center backs are sitting too deep, flat-footed. It allows that gap, it allows that space, and it allows that area for Ismail Sarr to run into. Uh, So it just, it was uncharacteristic from Liverpool. And then 
I don't want to go so far as to say like, oh, and then they panicked and they're just so not used to losing that they, they gave the goal away because it's obviously it's a very bad pass from Trent Alexander-Arnold. But what it felt like to me, never having been in the position of been being like, you know, 20 plus points clear at the top of the Premier League, but I've been in games where you're playing a team that you probably should be beating and you've maybe not been beating them because you yourself weren't as efficient as you should have been. And you're like, oh, we're going to get some chances. We're going to score goals. We hit the post there. We did that there. And then slowly you, you kind of let that mentality take over. And suddenly it's the 60th minute, the 65th minute, and you're, it's still nil nil, or now you're one nil down. And there can suddenly be that switch of like, oh, this is that type of game. We're having that type of game and I think that's what you start to see from Liverpool as the game progresses is yeah. just little things pa- passes going out of bounds from 10 yards away balls being miscontrolled like uh, crosses not clearing the first defender or even not coming off at all things slow down and I think you can just see Liverpool just realizing like oh this is not the way this game was supposed to go and not at the same time having the kind of fight the ability to switch it on and make that result go the way they want it to the way they have so many other times this season yeah. I think that was the big difference for me at least in those final 15 to 20 minutes. The uh, juxtaposition, to coin a phrase, <laughs> between this game and uh, the West Ham game last Monday for Liverpool. Mm-hmm. Huge, wasn't it? I mean, it, it, when, when they went down against West Ham, which no one was expecting them to go 2-1 down there, everyone was, you know, everyone on social media, everyone watching the game was like, here we go, it's gonna, they're going to win this, they're going to come back from this. I was waiting for that moment here, but it didn't come, and it almost seemed like Jurgen Klopp expected it wouldn't come. Yeah. This, there, there was no forward pressure like they had at West Ham at all. And, you know, the, 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 all the forwards are having an off day, it seemed here. They looked tired. There was no cohesion between the lines here at all. And, I mean, there was a few chances, like Lallana hit the post and uh, I don't know but, but it just it just didn't seem they were at the races at all here and they made this point on the NBC coverage that Jurgen Klopp just looked different he had a bit different demeanor about him and after the game he didn't make up a silly excuse about the wind being too windy or the grass being too green or whatever nonsense <laughs> he usually comes up with he he sort of seemed to accept that this was going to happen yeah. before it even finished the game. And we saw the camera catching him going over to Nigel Pearson with a few minutes to go and sort of giving him a hug and a congratulations. It just seemed like there was an inevitability about this result happening. And I think in many ways, it's a relief for yep. them. Agreed. And it's possibly the best thing for them because... Also agreed. I, I, I made a tweet that didn't get a wonderful reception that Jurgen Klopp campaign, you know, he was very adamant, this team needs a break. They're going to have this winter break. I'm going to give it to them. I'm going to miss a game and, you know, send the reserves out because of it. This this break is so important. Players go off to Miami and off to the beach and all these kind of places. And they haven't been the same since, have yeah. they? No. They haven't been the same team since. They've lost, they've, you know, lost two games since now and not quite look the same apart from maybe 20 minutes against West Ham. And I think this this loss maybe takes a lot of pressure off them. Then, you know, they don't have to worry about breaking the Invincibles or continuing the Invincibles uh, streak. They don't have to worry about Man City's 18-game streak, which they've now matched instead of beaten. They can just sort of play a bit freer now. They've still got 22 points at the top of this league. They're still alive in, 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 the, uh, in the Champions League. And, you know, even if they are a goal down to Atletico, they've got to fancy themselves at Anfield in a second leg. So I think I think this could in some way, be the best possible thing for Liverpool at yeah. this point. So, I, I <clears throat> two things there. Uh, one, we had Keith Costigan on the show last year when it was that sort of like Liverpool, Man City, kind of going back and forth for the title. And I asked him, like, is there an argument to be made that it's better to be in second place because the pressure's on the top team and you can sort of make up that ground while maybe, like, you know, uh, heavy, heavy is the crown sort of thing. And he responded, like, no, it's better to be on top of the table. Like, very succinctly <laughs> and correctly, I would add. Um, Points on the board. But, 
But with that in mind, <laughs> uh, here I agree with you because I think there is something to be said for the pressure of being perfect, being undefeated. We've got to keep it going. We can't rest. We don't want to give that up. That when you finally have that loss, I do think it, it maybe takes a little bit of the pressure off. It's just one less thing that is uh, creating static in your head that that's, can be a little bit of a distraction. And, and I do think that you could see sort of Liverpool doing what they do and it just kind of didn't work in this game but that just hasn't been a thing that's happened really this season because I went I rewatched this one I didn't see it live I watched the entire thing again and I watched it from this perspective of like what did Watford figure out like how did they go about sort of like neutralizing Liverpool and when you see 3-0 you assume it's going to be like they were it was a comprehensive victory and in reality like it could have been 3-0 Liverpool at halftime like Liverpool had their chances and I just think yeah. this was just one of those games and Watford did, played very well I'm taking nothing away from them but I also think there's going to be some reaction of like oh is, is this Liverpool feeling the pressure is this is there going to be a title race I think anyone who makes that argument is uh, disingenuous at best but I do think that this is not that big of a deal in my mind. I think it's Liverpool being tired, making some shaky mistakes, and then maybe this will be the, the moment that they're like, okay, yeah, so we can be beaten. we got to tighten up a little bit more. we got to play a little bit harder. And maybe it will also be helped when they have Jordan Henderson, Joe Gomez, and uh, James Milner all fully fit. All three of them uh, did not dress for this game either. Yeah, that would really help. And, yeah. you, and you can personally relate, Taylor, to the experience of having to live up to perfection with the Total Soccer Show. That's why you have me on, because you know, you, know, you need to break those perfect streaks and have a yeah. bad uh, boat show every now and then. That's, that's why I'm here. I'm t- here to help you. Who told you? Who told you that that was how we did this? I saw your text. <laughs> uh, let's move uh, back to Major League Soccer and away from Ryan being sad. Uh, at least I don't think you were sad about this one because I'm not sure. Uh, as you said, you're, you're Charlotte till you die. You've got it tattooed. You Charlotte till you die on the back of your neck or on your forehead? I forget which one. I know one's on the forehead. I am. I'm sure I am. I'm Charlotte till I die. Yeah, everywhere. It's everywhere now. I can't Can't imagine anybody having that tattooed. Uh, LAFC won (laughs) Inter-Miami nil. Again, I think this is the type of game that I think the narrative for people who wanted a narrative, this needed to be uh, Miami won this game and like, oh, they're going to do it. Like Beckham figured it out or it needed to be uh, Miami get destroyed. And that's the other sort of way to talk about this because I think the actual narrative of they lost one nil, but it could have been worse, but they also showed resiliency against the league's best team and had a few chances themselves and probably could have gotten a goal that isn't quite as headline grabbing. Uh, so it did feel like a game that maybe people wanted to go one of two ways and instead it went a third, a third way, which was LAFC get the points. Carlos Vela does Carlos Vela things. But Inter-Miami looked okay, even if their jerseys looked to me like uh, they were left in the laundry with uh, like a, a, a red garment as well. Yeah, someone's MAGA hat went in with the whites. Oh boy, didn't they? that's the problem. Sorry, um, <laughs> I think <laughs> I think this team, as you say, they do. They just need to gel a little bit more. Yep. They got some. They, they weren't bad for a first outing at all. I'd say maybe the fullbacks weren't up to scratch. Alvis mm-hmm. Powell, right back, wasn't. Up to much good, I would say. Maybe not the left Agreed. back either. Uh, Robbie uh, Robinson. Yeah, yeah, ben, ben Sweat gets magged by Carlos Vela before he plays in a, that ball for Rossi early in the game. Uh, he doesn't really cover himself in glory on the goal either. I thought he yeah. had a thankless task of being involved in getting forward and trying to be like a, an attacking outlet, but then also having to pay attention to Carlos Vela, who was lined up on that right side uh, for the majority of the game. Not really the easiest of jobs to handle uh, simultaneously. Baptism of fire for him at Inter Miami there. And it just, it, it doesn't do himself any favors. He just, does basically just let him go for yeah. that uh, for that goal, for the goal mm. which he does chip and Carlos Vela scoring a chip who'd have thunk it he did it again um, but, but uh, yeah not not a bad performance from Inter Miami 
here. Um, I was going to say Robbie Robinson, who was, I think he was a Generation Adidas player who's come through from Clemson, South Carolina, no mm-hmm. less. Uh, maybe they need some more strike options aside yeah. from him. Um, yeah, I think but so. I, a positive start, I would say. And obviously, when you come up against LAFC, who are likely to win the Supporters' Shield, maybe even MLS Cup this season, very, very impressive. Mm-hmm. And who are probably still buzzing from that electric CONCACAF uh, Champions League game a few days earlier. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, it was the wrong time to face LAFC, even if it is the opening day of the season. And uh, I, I, I would expect uh, more from them going forward. And maybe this is just so they can save that first goal for the home game, baby. Sure. Let, let, let's go with that narrative. Uh, yeah, for, <laughs> for Miami, they do have Juan Agudelo, but I guess not uh, fit enough to play the full 90, so instead they yeah. go with Robertson. But I think you're absolutely right. that I would expect them, I think right now Miami still They'll only have the two DPs. They've got one more spot. I'm going to assume that's where they're going to look or they're going to look to strengthen considerably in their attacking options because the other narrative I think you could go with from this game is the haves and have-nots when it comes to attacking options and goal scorers. Uh, Rossi, obviously, uh, very good in front of goal. Doesn't get his name on the score sheet here. But Carlos Vela, as I said, just doing Carlos Vela things, I think his goal really does show you everything he brings to the table because obviously the chip is amazing. It's, It's a lovely goal. It's like, what, 20 yards out to be able to chip a goalkeeper is Mm -hmm. uh, very impressive. But then everything about it, he uses his shoulder to bring a long ball down. Uh, Some debate as to whether or not that was going to be a VAR for handball. But I think uses the shoulder because he's cutting back as the ball is coming in. So I think there's like an awareness of the situation and an ability to improvise. Then he gets a little lucky. Uh, he gets past Fagal's challenge, I think, with a little bit of luck. But he has the skill to cut back on Alvis Powell, the awareness and the vision to simultaneously note that, ooh, Robles has come out because he expected a shot and has not adjusted his position. So now he's about six or seven yards out of goal. I could probably chip him. That's exactly what happens. Uh, I just thought from start to finish, this goal was uh, pretty, pretty wonderful when it comes to Carlos Vela and all that he does. Indeed, yes. And that was his Arsenal trick, wasn't it? For lobs and, lobs, yep. and, uh, lobs and chips. So he liked that a lot there. And I thought, Ro- I, maybe I'm going too far, but I thought Rossi was even better in this game. He was outstanding, Agreed. I thought. Yeah. No, I mean, and I think, like, and to your point, like, we've seen the those games where, which are incredibly emotional, the CONCACAF Champions League and the, the comeback, the win, the way they were able to pull it off. And you would almost forgive them for, like, it's the start of the season, but it's 34, 34 games. It's a long season. We'll be able to pull it back. Like You could see them being a little bit fatigued, and instead that Bob Bradley continues to tinker, continues to adjust, and gets the three points to start. It shows you how strong that team is. It's why I said they are, in my opinion, the best team in the league right now. Uh, no disrespect to anybody else, uh, but some of the injuries that have already happened and how strong that LAFC roster is has me feeling fairly confident about their chances this year. I really want to go and see a game in that stadium because yeah. it sounds brilliant for the whole 90 minutes, doesn't it? It does. I, I think our plan is to go for All-Star. Maybe maybe you can join us for that. But hopefully, uh, may, hopefully maybe possibly sooner because, yeah, that, uh, that stadium is pretty atmospheric. Pretty yeah. atmospheric, I must say. Sounds good. I want to, one of those famous CONCACAF Champions League nights. One day I'll go along. One day. <laughs> well, speaking of atmosphere, uh, I was very impressed by the atmosphere in Germany, in the Bundesliga when I was there. Uh, maybe the DFL, the Deutsche Football League, was less impressed by the atmosphere this weekend, specifically uh, in Hoffenheim v. Bayern. Uh, much has been made of this one. We're going to try to kind of go a little bit deeper on this one, because when you read the initial story... It's slightly confusing. Is that fair, a fair way to put it, Ryan? 
It is on the surface a little bit confusing, this story, because it seems there's been a number of attacks via the medium of Banner over the Mm -hmm. past few weeks uh, over Dietmar Hopp, the owner of Hoffenheim, who has been referred to as the English equivalent of an SOB. Uh, But in Germany, that word is a lot stronger. It's it's basically the worst thing you can call someone there. But even though it's the kind of thing you hear in chants very often, and it's the kind of word that's been bandied around a lot in soccer. I think Timo uh, Werner had that chanted at him directly. Right, yeah, and lots of it's very common to hear that chanted at players yep. in in German games, and in, in this game with uh, Bayern Munich against Hoffenheim, with uh, Hoffenheim against Bayern Munich, sorry, uh, Bayern six nil up in this one, and uh, the the referee, uh, according to UEFA protocols, which was the three warnings basically, wasn't it? Take this banner down, and and they didn't take it down, so the players were taken off the pitch. It's the first time I've actually gone on YouTube and watched extended highlights of not <laughs> not soccer being played. I watched like, the ten minute clip of Fox Soccer of this again. I had to watch it back because it was. Crazy. Crazy. Uh, the players come back on the field, um, uh, because, and all, all of the Bayern executives going over to the corner where the Bayern away fans are to plead with them to take this banner down. And this is a banner of a, of a, a banner of a similar nature was displayed uh, last weekend, I believe, mm-hmm. it was by Dortmund fans um, who've now been banned from attending Hoffenheim games for the next two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, their banner had um, Hop's face with uh, a crosshairs over it, mm-hmm. which in poor taste because it came a matter of days after a terrorist attack in Hanau, which kind of, um, you know, brought a deep sadness over the country. Uh, Union Berlin, I believe, have had the same banner up. Um, it's been it's been seen a few places in low league. I think Gladbach uh, as well. Correct, yes. And uh, VFL Bochum also, VFL yep. Bochum, I should say, also uh, they had a, a reaction to this uh, in, in, the, in the day after it. They held up a banner that said, an SOB is insulted, all of Germany is shocked, racism on a daily basis, colon, nothing happens. And that's yep. kind of one of the points that's come out of this, Taylor, is that there's been all this shock. How dare they insult a millionaire owner of a club we're going to go off the field and we're going to we're going to just kick around the ball for the remaining 15 minutes of the game in protest at this shocking treatment of this millionaire in the meantime when racist or other abhorrent behavior happens there is not been a reaction quite as strong so yeah, i think, I think that's uh, kind of a complaint of of this situation for starters to emphasize your point uh andy brassel writing for the guardian wrote uh when hurts a defender jordan uh Tur- Oh man, I did not pronounce uh, or practice pronouncing his name. Uh, Tarunariga uh, was racially abused in the recent DFB Pokal tie at Schalke. He received a second yellow card for his furious reaction. The game wasn't stopped, and nor did the players decide to abandon the game to have a protest kick around. Uh, mm. I think, I think that right there is it's. I mean, how do I explain this? It's it's not quite the same issue, but it's in and of itself a massive issue that I think uh, Hoff, for his part, has has I think he's complained to the league that this type of protest is to him racism. It's on par with racism. I think that's a ludicrous claim. Um, yes. But like I, I and I take the, the kind of point there that you you're really frustrated by a banner that uh, is attacking an owner because of uh rightly or wrongly perceived ways of doing business that some fans think are wrong uh, versus like a failure to really take an action in incidents that are probably much more resonant and have much more weight to them. I I get where the frustration comes from, from especially the Bochum fans for the protest in general. It's from what I understand, it's it's a little bit about uh, Hop and everything that he he has done because basically he's a billionaire. He's pumped a bunch of money into Hoffenheim. He's sort of found his way around the fifty one fifty plus one, uh, similar to Red Bull. Uh, and I think that was another great line. Uh, there's a D- Der Spiegel article by Marco Fuchs. Uh, I, I retweeted this one. Some fans in the corners, I think he was saying like the the minority fans want to escalate the conflict, which is about Bundesliga clubs as a private hobby, about the all around commercialism. Red Bull is the drink for that. Hop 
the face. Uh, the collective penalties for the misconduct of some Dortmund fans against Top, as well as his private lawsuits against BVB supporters, have not diffused the conflict. And I think that's the issue, is basically a lot of these protests are about like uh, individuals taking over clubs, about commercialism of the sport. Yeah. Um, but when you have a person's face in crosshairs, I think that's the major issue, is that then it is, it goes from a protest to a, a threatening accident, or a uh, threatening action, a threatening incident. I found myself comparing it to uh, to the Iron Front uh, situation last year in Major League Soccer, mm. and I kind of immediately was like, no, they're not the same at all, because Iron Front is holding a banner that's representative of a thing that isn't a person's face with like an X through it or anything like that. So I think this is, in my mind, a very good example of things being two things of I think the fans have some justification for feeling like the league isn't taking their views into account isn't allowing them to have the sort of uh, protest and the banners that they would have in the past, but simultaneously to protest it by the way they're doing or the way they're going about it, I think doesn't really help their case. If anything, it makes it seem more confusing, which is why we're having to have this sort of lengthy conversation about it. Yeah. And in Brassel's article, which you mentioned in The Guardian, he says the protests weren't just about Hop, but more about what a crackdown on their freedom to criticize right. him might represent. They're basically protesting the fact that they want to call him an SOB and they can't. Exactly. In many ways. <laughs> and, I mean, and what this amounted to on the field there was millionaire players uh, yep. speaking up for a billionaire to the common fans in the corner there. And I don't mm-hmm. think that's a fantastic look. No. And as much as... Uh, uh, this, is, this all comes down to basically, basically the sanctity of German soccer and how German fans believe that soccer should be run there. And you know, fan-owned models, 50 plus one, and all that jazz. And interlopers like Hop coming in um, because he's exploited, as you mentioned, the 50 plus one rule because there's an exception that if you've been significantly financial, su- financially supporting your club for 20 years, you can be granted majority ownership of your club. And there's several ways to get around 50 plus one rule. Uh, Wolfsburg do the same by Leverkusen, uh, RB Leipzig. None of these guys adhere to this 51 plus, 50 plus one rule properly, and neither do Hoffenheim. And Hoffenheim seem to be the latest target of Bayern's uh, ire in this situation. But the problem I have, Taylor, is that Hop isn't like a Qatari foreign owner investor who's coming to sports watch his nation or something, some of the more odious situations we've seen in other leagues. He's a guy. This is hometown club. Yep. He supported him since he was a kid. This is a guy who, you know, he's made millions out of his company, SAP, who do uh, sports statistics. Irony being that statistics for this game were ruined. The passing ones were ruined for the last 15 <laughs> minutes of this game. Um, but he's, he's one, you know, he's, he sponsors cancer institutes in Heidelberg, where he's in, in, in the vicinity. You know, he builds playgrounds. He, he, does, he does lots of community stuff. He's generally a good guy. Um, he's basically a, a, a lad done good from his town who's, trying to help his team, who are very small, and he's made them very big. And it's yeah. kind of, I suppose, the equivalent might be Jack Walker at Blackburn Rovers. He was a steel magnate in Lancashire who grew his team up, got them to win the Premier League, what was that, 94, 95? And then kind of Blackburn, he pulled his money out mm-hmm. from there on in. But it was kind of the same thing, a local person doing that. So I don't have as much of a problem as that as I do, say, a Qatari ownership group coming in. What I do have a problem with, Taylor, is the Bayern fans, at the risk of being unpopular to maybe a faction of the listeners here, being a little bit hypocritical. What I would ask is, the fans who are protesting against Hoffenheim and Hop and their odious moneyed ways, were they the same fans who dress as the T from T-Mobile? <laughs> I really hope Serena? so. Was it the same <laughs> guys who do that for Bayern? Bayern who, you know, they're sponsored by Deutsche Telekom T-Mobile. Uh-huh. They, uh, they, they are part owned by Audi and Adidas and Qatar. They're partly oh. owned by Qatar. <laughs> and they, they, you know, the 50 plus one rule, which is meant to protect German soccer, in many ways, it helps teams like Bayern, the heritage teams, because it doesn't let any new 
new teams into the club. It doesn't let any interlopers like Hoffenheim come in. And kind of part of me feels like that's why Bayern have got their backup, backup because a new kid's coming in and they don't like this new yep. kid in the playground, basically. Yeah, I feel the same way about Leipzig, to be honest. That I know right. some of that is against modern football and this club that's sort of artificially inflated and you change the name and all that other stuff. But at the end of the day, you're absolutely right. To me, a lot of it does feel like you wouldn't care about this if they were a third division team, or at least you wouldn't care about it as much. But right. now that they are coming in and challenging the supremacy, and like I think you can make an argument that you look at some of the teams that are doing these, these protests, it's Gladbach, it's Dortmund, it's Bayern, historically very, very successful teams. And there is yes. an element, at least with Bayern, of like the incredibly wealthy person it's almost like old money criticizing new money to some extent. It's just like, oh, you think you're at our level? Like, how dare you presume? Like, there is that there is that feeling, and I think it is best exemplified in my mind uh, to the point you made of, like, the person dressed in fully sponsored uh, T-Mobile garb tweeting something like, oh, you know, how dare they, like, bring these corporate interests into football? Like, it right. does feel a bit like, okay, is this about the corporate interests and the way things are going, or is it about other teams having a bunch of money and you feel like they're doing it the wrong way. And I would say like, I felt that way when Man City did what Man City did. I think a lot of people felt that way. Uh, Like, Abramovich is sort of like before before me in terms of my rage about it, whereas Man City a bit more. But like I think those people felt the same way, and it sometimes can be justified a certain way, sometimes it gets justified another way. But I think there are reasons to feel like, oh, if you're like limiting our ability to protest, that is a slippery slope and I have an issue with that. If yeah. you're just sort of being like, these people are good now because they spent money and I don't like it, I have more of a problem with that. It just seems like there are bigger fights to fight than this one. From it an outside really looking in, maybe, maybe I don't understand the full context of this and I don't understand what it means to be a Bayern fan. They are affronted by what Hop has done here, but it just seems to me like they're operating within the confines of the 50 plus one rule because it benefits them because they can still have those big corporate sponsors mm-hmm. and they are still, you know, it's not going to affect their hegemony in the league. And you could look at other targets. You could look at RB Leipzig with their globalism and Red Bull coming in. You can look at Bayer, who, you know, are a company who produce pesticides, who've had a uh, some controversial backgrounds with some of the uh, pharmaceuticals they've produced. Uh, Wolfsburg, you know. I mean, they, 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 had, some, they had some connections, Leverkusen did. We'll put it that way. Yeah, sure. And, and even uh, Wolfsburg with Volkswagen, uh, Wolfsburg being where Volkswagen's from, you know, their emissions crisis. You know, you could argue they're destroying the planet. There's other targets you could go for apart from a guy who owns a statistics company who's grown his club from the ground upwards. And maybe I'm getting the complete wrong end of the stick of this here, but maybe I'm playing devil's advocate. But I just feel like... It feels a little bit like Bayern just want to be in the league uncontested and they don't like a new kid coming in. Look, if you don't like a millionaire, you don't like a millionaire. I don't like a millionaire. I think there are, there are reasons to like Hop. I think anytime you look at an individual who has lived an entire life, if you go deep, you can find reasons to not like them. And there are, I think, some reasons to like Hop. I think some of them have been exaggerated. I think some of them are more are more fair. And I think it's okay to say, like, I don't like millionaires. That's an okay stance to take. I do think the crosshairs exacerbates the situation and yeah. makes it more of a personal attack. And you can't yes. say, this is a, a peaceful protest where we're just trying to vocalize our concern about the influence of an individual, but then also have that iconography. It, it, it is in the current situation, in the current climate, it is not the look you want to go for. I have no problem with, I mean, again, like this is, uh, I think the Bayern fans had like the giant TIFO that had the curse on it about Leipzig. Again, didn't hear that big of a protest about Bayern mm-hmm. fans uh, having a curse word in their, in their sort of TIFO. I don't think that's the issue. I think it's the individuality of the attack and the way it's structured that I think changes things a little bit for me. But that said, uh, down with millionaires. <laughs> yeah, but you could even look at other 
Espanyol have offensive manners and chants about Gerard Piquet, very mm-hmm. offensive about him and his family and how they wish he was no longer a living person. And, and you know, that, that doesn't get dealt with in the same way. But, you know, the, the billionaire O'Neill Hoffenheim does get targeted. It seems like there's just some inconsistencies going on here. I don't know, Taylor. I don't know about this one. Are you so you're saying you're pro millionaire? Is that what I'm hearing? Uh, are we? Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I aspire to be one. Does that make it bad? It does not. It does not. I think if anything, it's understandable. Uh, and what else is, is understandable is that we've talked a lot about the weekend, Ryan. So I think mm. we've done our job. I think we can call it a day for today. Uh, lots of well, some games reviewed, lots of topics discussed. Is that a fair way to summarize this one? That's very fair, Taylor. I'm going to head off into the sunset very shortly. I'm preparing for the LA Marathon, which I'm running this weekend. Wow. Well, in theory, I am until the point where it's cancelled because of coronavirus. Oh, yeah. But until then, uh, that, that's pretty impressive. Have, have you done marathons before? This is number 12, baby. Oh, and why do you hate yourself? Um, lots of reasons. We can't get it. I haven't got another hour, frankly. <laughs> the, the, the Ryan Bailey therapy session has to wait till next week? <laughs> Indeed it does. All right, Indeed well, I, I, we will be rooting for you. Uh, I hope that you do get your chance to run it. Will we, with that in mind, we haven't talked about this, will we be hearing from you next Monday, or will you need the day off to recover? Uh, I, I very much hope to be here next Monday. All in right. Many, in more ways than one. <laughs> well, until then, Ryan Bailey, thank you very much for taking the time to talk about all the things we talked about today. Always a pleasure. Never a chore.